um, Dr. Annette Hubschler from the University of Cape Town has published a paper, The Social Economy of Rhino Poaching of Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, Professional Hunters, and Marginalized Local People. When we think about poaching, we always think about the animals first, and that's obviously a great concern because the extinction-level effect of uh, poaching has drastically increased over the past couple of years, uh, not just in South Africa, but in the surrounding countries as well. And because of the high demand uh, from other countries for these uh, illicit items, rhino horns, elephant tusks, um, the demand has grown, and thereby the poaching has grown as well and the people surrounding these parks have become the ones that have been doing the poaching not all of them agree with the process not everybody in the community agrees with it uh, but it's definitely a question to be raised how do we curb or how do we realize the effects of poaching without considering the people in the communities around the area. So join me on the line now to discuss this and her publication, uh, Dr. Annette Hubschler. Welcome to the Weekend Early Breakfast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Now, the, the conversation that we're having this morning is around uh, a paper that you uh, published just a few years ago, uh, The Social Economy of Rhino Poaching. Uh, of economic freedom fighters, professional hunters, and marginalized local people, and going through your going through the the, the paper, just looking at the extra abstract quickly, uh, it reads: In light of the high incidence of rhino poaching in southern Africa, the African rhinoceros might become extinct in the wild in the near, in the near future. Scholars from a variety of disciplines have analyzed drivers of illegal hunting and poaching behavior in general terms, um, and then it goes. On to say that by engaging with with lived experiences and social worlds of poachers and rural communities, this article reflects on empirical evidence gathered during ethnographic fieldwork with poachers, prisoners, and local people living near the Kruger National Park. Based based on that and um, the paper, firstly, why was it important to go and do this ethnographic study to understand um, the, the 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 ecosystem? that exists around uh, the Kruger National Park and the poaching of rhinos? Right. Um, let me give you a little bit of background um, to myself. I've, I've been working in the field of organized crime for more than 20 years. Mm. And about 10 years ago, we saw a sudden increase upsurge of rhino poaching in, in South Africa. That um, upsurge had been happening in our neighboring countries for some time. So there was increased rhino poaching in Zimbabwe, um, also in, um, in places like Namibia and in many um, of our neighboring countries, the Chiranas have gone locally extinct. So I was quite interested in this rhino story. Why was suddenly why was the rhino suddenly being, being hunted? What was the reason for so much money being spent on it? Um, and of course, you know, for me, the rhino represents all sorts of other species that are threatened by extinction. So it's not the rhino is kind of symbolic of we have cycads, we've got um, all sorts of smaller animals that are also threatened. We know, for example, the sandbox in the Western Cape mm. is um, threatened with extinction. So you know, for me, the rhino sort of represented um, just an example of a bigger ecosystem of extinction. And what I ended up doing, I, um, I did a PhD on understanding the supply chain of rhino, well, the bigger rhino, rhino horn market. So what I 
did ended up doing is I followed Reinhold from the source to the market, which means I spent some time in Mozambique and some of the local communities living near the Kruger National Park and the Limpopo National Park. I got a recess permission to speak to convicted poachers and traffickers. So I went to about 15 different correctional centers in South Africa, mm. or soon all across um South Africa and spoke to them and tried to understand, you know, why is it that you went poaching? What were your motivating factors? What is your background? Um, then I spoke to conservatives, I spoke to law enforcers, and and I had funding to actually follow the horn to to the consumer markets. So I spent some time in Hong Kong and Vietnam. And was really lucky to actually get access to consumers and some of the traders. So, you know, essentially, you know, the meaning of ethnographic research is really that you really dive, dive deeply into the subject matter and you try to understand why things are happening. And, you know, for me, the big thing that I found um, at the source, so here in South Africa, in Mozambique, is that... Um, the tribe per se is not necessarily poverty, but it is exclusion and um, social inequality. So, for example, um, people around um, Kruger National Park obviously lost their land, um, um, lost their land, they lost user rights, and they have very little benefit from, from the Kruger National Park. So if you speak to local people around the park, they will tell you, well, you know, it's kind of like a Disney park for uh, rich people. We don't see much benefit from there. Yeah. And I remember I had one focus group of um, some young people living very close to Kruger National Park, and I asked them what the rhino meant to them. And they said to me, well, you know, if the rhino goes extinct tomorrow, it doesn't really matter to me because, you know, maybe I can get some of the things that the rhino has. So the rhino has its own helicopter, the rhino has land, it has rangers, it has a policeman mm. that protects it. And I think that kind of touches on the crux of the matter, you know. Unless these rhinos or, you know, parks in general and species are very more, are valuable, more valuable in life than death, they're, they're not going to survive. Mm. So somebody who's living near the park and they just see which tourists driving past, but they don't benefit from this park, they're not going to be very supportive of the park and the animals in it. That, that's actually such a, the, such a such a harsh or reality check of a description because as you started out with your explanation of why you did the research, you said you saw the rhino as a symbol for various other species that were going extinct uh, and you wanted to find out why and how and what and as you just started describing the talk, uh, the way that you were talking about the people around the park and and why they why they have this disconnect to the rhino, it's not actually a disconnect. They see the rhino as a different symbol of 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 wealth and opportunity that are not being garnered to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the crux of the matter, and I think a lot of the measures that we have implemented to save the rhino, they don't necessarily consider community. So, you know, we've got demand reduction campaigns, we've got some laws that have been put in place, and then we've got a lot of law enforcement activities. Um, some people would call it even uh, green militarization. You know, we've got basically um, um, highly armed rangers protecting rhinos. And, mm. and you know, what's the, the research that I've been doing of late is to say, well, 
if you if you really want to save the rhino or ecosystems as a species, um, you have to include um, local communities. Um, without local communities, you will not have any um, any ecosystems or any animals. For our listeners that have just tuned in, this is Cape Talk Weekend Early Breakfast with myself, Mark Johnson. Uh, I'm in conversation with Dr. Annette Hepschler from the Global Disc Governance Program uh, situated in the Faculty of Law at the University of Cape Town. And we're talking about a paper that she published uh, not too long ago, The Social Economy of Rhino Poaching. And the research that she did, ethnographic research she did, going into each community, not just the communities around uh, the Kruger National Park um, that 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 uh, border the Kruger National Park, but also, uh, as she said earlier, the supply chain going from um, the other places, Mozambique, all the way up to Asia to see uh, who is actually purchasing it and why they're purchasing it. If you have any questions, maybe you have your own story uh, about what exactly the process is, why this increased popularity and increased support of line of poaching, not obviously from the authorities, but from communities, please feel free to call into studio on 021-446-0567. We'll also take your WhatsApp texts, uh, your questions over WhatsApp through voice note or texts on 072-567-1567. Just before we carry on, I just wanted to ask a question regarding because um, you mentioned you you, you know, had conversations that interviewed uh, uh, poachers who were convicted and or were prosecuted and convicted um, in jail. Are they are they have many poachers been convicted? Is there quite a large number of poachers that have been um, sort of sent to jail for these crimes? I can't give you the exact numbers. Um, I know that we arresting a lot of poachers. Mm. Uh, the conviction rate is not particularly high. But you know, there's also this misconception often that um, you know by by arresting poachers, you're actually dealing with the issue. Mm. Um, it is actually often much more important to to get hold of the intermediaries, the, the traders, the organized crime mm. networks that are actually sort of um, providing the connections to the market. So they organizing this whole transport, hunting, and um, trading of rhino horn. And unless we disrupt those supply chains, we're not going to make much of a difference on the ground. So you can essentially you can arrest as many poachers as you want. There will be there will be a flow of others that will follow. And I think that was quite an interesting sort of um, recognition when I spent time in Mozambique. Um, there were a lot of young men that just they didn't have other opportunities, they didn't have jobs, and they're still how some of their friends and colleagues were making easy money. So literally some of the poachers in, in, in Mozambique um, are seen as Robin Hood. Um, you get you get a rich young or you die trying. I mean, it was quite interesting, some of the mottos, which kind of reminds, uh, reminds one of some of the gangster mottos. Yeah, know, the drug side. This, yeah, absolutely. But, that, but that's exactly what I was, was going to say. I mean, you, you you said as well earlier you've got a um, you, you've got a history in researching and working around uh, organized crime, and this falls this to me. I mean, obviously it's organized crime this as well. But as long as well as the drug trade, human trafficking, um, various other uh, trade in in illicit goods or um, the, the the illicit trade. It's as the exact same thing, and describing the socioeconomic circumstance of people needing to do something to support a family, to support a community, you know, that just resonates with 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 the general um, sort of premise of why organized crime um, 
maintains its its uh, its, its its popularity amongst a certain group of people in, in a in a in a certain social economic situation. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I found some of the uh, cases that I looked at really similar to what we have on the Cape Flats or in comparable situations. So you have kingpins. So these are sort of the rhino horn uh, hunt organizers that fulfill kind of a state-like functions where they provide social services, mm. you know, they give uh, money for education to community members. In some instances, they think boreholes and they've built little roads and spaza shops. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a purely altruistic Robin Hood function. Obviously, it serves as a mechanism to, to buy protection and um, goodwill from the community. But then I also have to say, you know, it's, it's, you can, I cannot paint all communities in the same stroke. So I also found that often women and mothers and children are not so happy with the whole rhino poaching thing happening. Mm. And they would, uh, there, there were some places where the community would call community meetings and, and speak to the poachers and say, listen, we don't want this to happen anymore. Because of course, poaching is not... Um, it's a dangerous endeavor, you know, mm. beyond um, facing possible arrests, you might also get shot um, for trespassing. There's also the wild animals, so, mm. you know, beyond, beyond facing rhinos, the lions, the hyenas, the all sorts of dangerous um, animals that lurk in the bush. So, it's, it's, uh, so not all poachers come back home, and... In some Mozambican villages, you, you, you will find half-built um, um, houses now. There are a lot of buildings that don't have an income anymore. So it's sort of, uh, you know, communities are often split, and not everybody supports the Persian economy. And then obviously not all um, communities are involved in the Persian economies anyway. So it's usually the ones that are um, strategically situated close to conservation areas, um, um, that will sort of um, provide a springboard into parks and uh, yeah, so it's sort of a mixed bag. Before we before we get into um, a positive role that the, the government could play or state authorities could could play to um, assist communities or guide communities or give them the resources uh, that they need instead of going to find it through um, poaching or illicit trade. When you were in, was it Hong Kong that you said you went to? Uh, I was in Hong Kong and Vietnam. J- just to just to just to clarify again, what what is the the the, the allure, or what is what is the demand for? Why is there the demand for um, rhino horns, and why is it grown so rapidly? So there they are actually mixed users. So in some instances, rhino horn is used for um, in traditional medicinal preparations, so-called TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and this is a tradition that goes back more than 4,000 years. And, you know, essentially it's for, um, and, well, it's used in treatment of fever. Um, it's also a detoxifier. Um, so there are all sorts of uses that um, are ascribed to rhino horn. But of late, it has become a bit of a status symbol. So depending on where the rhino horn comes from, how big it is, you know, how it's being cut or processed, the um, price of rhino horn can range from, from 25,000 US dollars to up to 100,000 US dollars per kilo. 
and we're really talking about a lot of money there. So people have been using it as a status symbol. I can afford to, to buy a rhino horn. Then it's also been used as a currency of sorts. So, you know, you basically pay for something with rhino horn. Mm. Um, like gold. So yeah, well, you know, like there's been sort of business deals, business deals be- between people. So somebody buys something and um, swaps it with rhino horn. Um, so that that has been happening. Um, and then it's also been used as a sort of wellness tracker. I mean, people have been, um, mix it with um, rice wine and have it as a shooter. So it's a very interesting um, use. And then it's also an art object. Um, so um, some rhino horn has been carved into um, libation cups and beautiful vases. And, you know, like lots of antique um, objects, rhino, rhino horn objects around as well. So there has been sort of also a bit of a mixing of old and new rhino horn, um, you know, the sort of legal and illegal markets for rhino horn, which makes it really difficult for law enforcers to differentiate, you know, what is legal and what is illegal. I, I was just looking now, and the, the average weight of a rhino horn is one and a half to three kilograms, and you were talking about 25,000 to 100,000 rand uh, US dollars. Yeah, uh, yeah. But per kilo so you i mean it's the the market value the market value is qu- is quite substantial and obviously that is the allure and we're talking about the amount of money that that poachers are making and how much money they're putting into the community but when something yeah. is is given a, a, a value like that it's obviously going to you know attract uh people who are in in a situation good or bad you know, to to become part of the market, either as poachers or transport transporting it, or you know, distribute distributing it, which is a scary thing. It really is um, very scary. In terms of in terms of um, government aid or what the government can do, did you were you were you, could you at least you know unpack from from your from your field work what communities would like to see government do or spoken to government officials on what it is they would like to do or what is hindering them from, um, you know, alleviating this problem? Um, look, at the moment, uh, what is being done, we do have, uh, uh, we have many arms of government that are working on different aspects of um, rhino management, rhino protection, rhino security. So, you know, you've got the security cluster that is looking at law enforcement um, responses. You've got DIRCA that is dealing with diplomatic um, um, issues, such as, um, you know, having um, an understanding, a memorandum of understanding with Vietnam, which um, was one of the, the, the biggest consumer markets for a while. Um, and then... You know, what, what we have been sort of um, advocating for is to, to get the communities more hands-on involved. And, you know, there are excellent examples from elsewhere in the world where, where it has worked. So I, for example, grew up in Namibia. Namibia is the second biggest rhino range state in Africa. And uh, there was a terrible rhino and elephant poaching crisis in the in the um, late 1980s and 90s, actually, the South African Defense Forces involved at the time. And um, in, in the 90s, when the media became independent, they started um, a system of community conservancies. Mm. And essentially, what was entailed is that communities could declare their own, um, well, um, 
areas could become conservation areas and they could derive benefits to um, through various means, consumptive and non-consumptive means. So, for example, they could host tourism operations, and then there was also trophy hunting, which um, would uh, provide benefits to communities. Now, in my own research with um, local communities um, in and around the Kruger National Park, what has become really obvious is that um, so for local communities, for many local community members, the park uh, is seen as something of a white elephant. It's not providing any benefits. Mm. Sort of there's this, um, a sense of fortress conservation. So, you know, there's a big fence between communities and the park. And, you know, Korean National Park is, of course, doing a lot of things to bridge that gap. But um, in terms of anti-poaching, of course, it, it is becoming more and more di- difficult to have um, good community relations. Yeah. Um, so some of the old um, user rights that communities have, such as accessing the park for water or some of the woods and stuff, that's not so easy anymore because um, you know every time somebody comes into the park, they have to be accompanied by rangers, mm-hmm. and the rangers are all busy with anti-poaching. Um, so what we, we um, after that, um, the article that you've been talking about, um, since then, we've worked on a community report. Basically, in this report, we've come up with design principles, um, which basically would um, enable more inclusive, um, well, um, rhino protection and conservation outcomes. And it's essentially really sort of like looking at how can we get communities um, involved, how can they benefit um, incentive structures and such things. Because you know, just just in conclusion, um, uh, you, mm. earlier you you were talking about um, how some of the some of the the poachers or people involved are regarded as Robin Hood, and but they still they still you know parts of the community don't want anything to do with the poaching. They're trying to stop it, and um, just from the abstract here, as a consequence, uh, conservationists and law enforcers are viewed with disdain and, and struggle to obtain cooperation. Uh, the article requires the current, uh, the article critique, critiques the current fortress conservation paradigm, which we just mentioned, uh, which assumes mm, conflict-laden mm. relationships between local people and the wildlife. Um, you know, which is, which is, which is the, the exact description of what you just made there, that people view, uh, the park as an exclusive thing and not contributing to their, to their well-being. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult, uh, bridge to overcome even as the Kruger National Park tries to reach out. You know, its resources are also strained. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, essentially what we need is a whole of society response. And, um, you know, if, if basically in, in all our endeavors, conservation endeavors, um, we need to, we need to, remember that people are very important as well. You know, a lot of the time we talk about, you know, save the rhino or save the pangolin or save this or that. But, you know, unless we actually um, move to the people that live right next to elephants or rhinos, um, we can forget about it. And, you know, it is often as easy, you know, for, for somebody who needs their entire harvest to cooperating elephants, they're obviously not going to be supportive of, um, of elephants um, hmm. um, and con- conservation unless they get compensated for their losses and they actually see um, 
uh, tangential benefits. Realis- you know, realistic, you have to see something in, in your pocket. And, you know, a lot of people in rural areas are living really on the margins of society. Um, in South Africa, we know that um, the, uh, some of the most violent and most frequent um, service delivery protests actually happen in rural areas mm. and places around Kruger National Park. So these are people that are really not re- receiving a lot of services from the state. So, you know, it's not just about... Uh, we, we essentially need to look at uh, broad-based um, empowerment strategies. And, you know, conservation will have massive benefits from it if we're looking after the people that live close to conservation yeah. areas. Before you save the liner, you have to save the people. Exactly. Absolutely. Doctor, thank you so much. And on that note, I'm going to thank you once again. The paper is called The Social Economy of Rhino Poaching of Economic Freedom Fighters, Professional Hunters, and Marginalized Local People by Dr. Annette M. Hopschler from UCT. Doctor, have a great weekend further. Same to you. Thanks for having me.